0: Tuesday Cafe, I'm Sean Canaan, and we are broadcasting live on December 19th from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. This hour, we're going to look at education issues in Florida. We will hear from the superintendents of schools in Pasco, Pinellas, and Hillsborough counties about a wide range of issues, ranging from cell phones in class to private school vouchers and new education laws that are coming out of Tallahassee. The three superintendents were recently questioned by members of the Tampa Tiger Bay Club. And we get we begin, we'll hear first from them introducing themselves. So here now are Kevin Hendrick from Pinellas County and Kurt Browning from Pasco. And first we'll hear Van Ayers, who is from Hillsborough County. He began with a joke about banning cell phones in schools. As her cell phone put away, we got Kurt next to
1: me with his uh, cell phone policy. So, Kurt, if you can make sure make sure everyone... I try to take a jab right away. I know. That's how it was going to be. Put your phones away.
2: Go ahead and use your time. <laughs>
3: um,
1: so, just uh, Van Ayers, I am uh, permanent, now superintendent, Hillsborough County Public Schools. Um, lifelong. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. It has been... Quite simply for me, Hillsboro is my home. Um, Born and raised uh, in Tampa, uh, graduate of Jefferson High School. Started at Mort Elementary and back when I was in school, uh, sixth grade center, Lockhart, Oak Grove, Ben Hill, and then a graduate of Jefferson High School. Then spent my career after that as a teacher at Blake High School, uh, teacher, assistant principal, principal. at Jefferson High School, the coolest thing ever to go back to my alma mater to serve as principal, the impact it had on our kids. I learned so much in that principalship that I take in my very lessons today as superintendent, all I learned during, during that principalship. Um, so after the principal of Jefferson was appointed the deputy superintendent under Jeff Aikens, and in that role for five years, we did some incredible work, learned, learned so much from the leaders that I've had to work under, learned so much from Jeff uh, during that five-year time. And after that, uh, as Chief's Officer under Mr. Davis, so eight years of experience, 27 years as an educator, educator specifically in Hillsborough County. Hillsborough County is my home and I could not be more proud and privileged to be the Superintendent of Hillsborough County Public Schools. Thank you.
2: Well, good afternoon. I am Kurt Browning. I'm the Superintendent of Schools in Pasco County, uh, born and raised in Dade City. Went to school and uh, actually went to school in Hillsborough County through uh, almost through the eighth grade. Was out in Springhead Elementary, uh, uh, Marshall and Tomlin. Uh, it was the first integrated class into Marshall. That's how long ago it was. Uh, then I moved back to Dade City, graduated Pasco High School, uh, went on to Pasco and uh, actually Community College. Then went on to USF twice to get my bachelor's. Go Bulls, um, got my master's uh, in 94. And um, my mom who just passed away in September, uh, 96, uh, she was a Pasco High graduate. Uh, my uh, wife is my two boys are uh, I am and we are vested in this school system um, I became superintendent in 2012 we are the largest district in the country with an elected superintendent um, and I like being elected I don't like the election campaigns but I like being elected uh, quite honestly uh, in due deference to my colleagues uh, I don't have to worry about getting fired on any given Tuesday um, <laughs> Thus, I've been here for almost 12 years. Uh, but uh, you do partner with your school board, and we've done great things in Pasco County. Uh, it has been uh, just a, a, a joy of my life to be able to provide opportunities for our kids uh, uh, and having parents have choice in what they, uh, what they want their children educated in, how they want their children educated. Uh, and I will tell you, the key to my success has been surrounding myself with people that are a lot smarter than I am. Uh, and we have been able to really do great things in Pasco. I'm looking forward to today, my first Tiger Bay experience. So looking forward to it.
4: good afternoon. I'm Kevin Hendrick, the superintendent Pinellas County schools. I want to thank our board chair, Laura Hine for being here with me today. Uh, as was mentioned, I've been superintendent for a year and a half in Pinellas County. I replaced Dr. Michael Grego, who was our superintendent for over a decade. Uh, prior to being superintendent, was the chief of academics for the school district for five years, before that a high school principal for nine years at Northeast High School in St. Petersburg, and before that a an assistant principal and a teacher in high schools. Uh, I also grew up in the community where I serve. I went to Largo High School uh, and have lived in Pinellas County for almost 40 years, like Kurt, USF graduate two-time, uh, as well as a graduate of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Um, in terms of Pinellas County schools, one of the things that's really different from my two colleagues uh, next to me is that we are a shrinking district. Unlike Hillsborough and Pasco, which are growing in population, the school age population in Pinellas is shrinking, not because they're going to private schools or charters or other places. Uh, In fact, our charter population has stayed pretty much the same for over a decade. It's that fewer people are having children. Um, 20 years ago, there were 10,000 babies born in Pinellas County a year. Uh, This year, there were about 7,500, and so we graduated 7,600 students last year, and we took in just a little bit over 6,000 kindergartners this year. So when you play that out over 12, 13 years in school, that's quite a change. Uh, Definitely proud of the work we've been able to accomplish in Pinellas County. Uh, When you talk about your career trajectory, uh, I would suggest not being the chief academic officer in the time of a pandemic, Um, That is uh, not necessarily something that was a lot of fun, but we're proud of the work that we did in keeping our students engaged during that particular time. Uh, This is not my first Tiger Bay uh, Club experience. We have the one in uh, St. Petersburg, and I've had the pleasure of being there. So look forward to the questions today, and and thank you all for being here uh, on this last Friday of school for us. Uh, And so we'll be uh, back at it. Thank you.
3: Thank you all for that. And first I'm going to go Doris told me that she has been thinking about this for months so I'm going to let her start. Okay,
5: thank you. I'm Doris Weatherford and uh, my question is do you have you studied how much it costs to determine whether or not a child is worthy of a free lunch compared to just giving them that free lunch? It's got to be a lot of paperwork in determining who's eligible.
2: Actually, it's not, the, not a lot of paperwork. Uh, it, uh, it really goes by the, um, th- there are applications that parents need to fill out for Title I, uh, free and reduced lunch. Uh, and then depending on the number of forms you get from these parents, it's, the determination is made whether or not you're a Title I school. Um, you know, the irony to all this thing is, is that Title I, in my opinion, was there to help schools get out of Title One status, but yet, and I'll speak very candidly with you. We have principals that are disappointed when the numbers come out and they didn't become a Title One school, because when you become a Title One school, there is a great deal of money that comes with that from the federal government, um, and and so it's we're actually Pasco is qualified uh, under a provision through the Florida or the United States Department of Agriculture where all of our kids, regardless of income get the free lunch and the free breakfast.
4: Very similar. In Pinellas, very similar situation. Uh, It's not a lot of paperwork. It is in fact a community-wide effort and I think 95% of our schools get free lunch and breakfast. In in our school district, so you know, we have over
1: 250 schools. Of those, about 150 are Title I, and we are a CEP school district. So if you, are, if you are a student in a school that is labeled CEP, you will get free, free uh, breakfast and lunch regardless if you're in that school, regardless of your own individual status.
0: Well, those are three local superintendents of schools. They were speaking recently at Tampa Tiger Bay Club. Those were Van Ayers from Hillsboro, and before that, Kevin Hendrick from Pinellas and Kurt Browning from Pasco County. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Conan, and we are broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. If you're listening live on December 19th, then you can give us a call if you have any thoughts about this. The number to call in is 813-239-9663. You can also email dj at wmnf.org. Or if you'd like to text us about what you think what, what you think about what you're hearing, the text number is area code 813-433-0885. Well, let's get back and hear some more of the superintendents. The next question was about the use of mobile phones in schools.
5: This question goes to all of you, and thank you for being here. Uh, Lynn Gray, school board member. Cell phones are literally... <clears throat> They're crippling our students socially, emotionally, academically, and importantly, safety-wise. And and Kurt, I I just think what you did was very, very necessary. So my question really is for you, why did you do it? And for Van and Kevin, uh, why haven't you suggested or promoted this cell phone? Uh, We already have principals that have initiated this themselves. Thank you.
2: Um, My kids would call me old-fashioned. But being a superintendent of the district, you know, we spend a great deal of money uh, trying to get our kids supported in order to make great grades, do well in the state assessments, uh, so we can get out of this state oversight status. We have uh, nine 12 schools in Pasco that are in the the state status. Why do I say that? Because I think there's a direct link between this and what goes on in a classroom and how engaged a student is in a classroom. There were three things I looked at. First thing was school safety. We've got kids doing stupid things by posting stupid things out to social media during school hours that will literally shut down a school and stop instruction. Secondly, this is no newsflash. The mental health piece: kids are so addicted, and I use the term "addicted," to, and so are adults, by the way. So are adults, but we're talking about kids today. Uh, they are so addicted to these things that they their their mental well-being is tagged to these things, and TikTok, and and whatever other platforms they're using. I really am concerned about our our our. Female students, I mean, they hear this stuff from their friends who are hateful on these social media platforms about, you're fat, you're ugly, nobody likes you, and they keep hearing that all the time. Uh, We just had a student in our district that committed suicide uh, because of some social media posts. It's horrible, it's tragic. Third and foremost was the loss of instructional time. I was tired of walking through classrooms and seeing kids on these things, not paying attention to what teachers are doing or saying. Um, you probably saw the piece on channel eight this week. I am going to be proposing a district wide ban on cell phones in all of our schools. We don't need them. If there's something goes on in a school, we'll call you parents and we'll tell you what's going on. Um, I don't like them.
1: And I'll ADD TO THAT, SO YESTERDAY, I, I WAS, WE GOT OUR GREAT AMERICAN teach in. I SPOKE AT TAMPA HEIGHTS ELEMENTARY. I SPOKE TO 66 OF OUR FIFTH GRADERS, AND WE did, I DID A LITTLE CELL PHONE ACTIVITY WITH THEM. BASICALLY, I WANTED THEM TO HELP ME, IF WE WERE TO DEVELOP A POLICY OR PROCEDURE BEHIND CELL PHONES, WHAT WOULD THAT BE? MY FIRST QUESTION TO THEM WAS, HOW MANY OF YOU, THESE ARE FIFTH GRADERS NOW, HOW MANY OF YOU HAVE A CELL PHONE YOU BROUGHT WITH YOU TO SCHOOL TODAY? I WAS EXPECTING MAYBE 20 PERCENT. EVERY ONE OF THEM RAISED THEIR HAND. Every one. Fifth graders had a cell phone that was with them, and they carried in their backpack. So we had some discussion yesterday. I do believe that our elementaries we do a, a, a very good job of our elementary students that they put them in their backpack and they turn them off and they keep them off during their entire school day. Our issue becomes in our middle and secondary where they, it's hard to control it. Um, so you know, I look forward. I got four of my board members here today. We all will be discussing some of that in the future of some policy or procedures behind that. Uh, my personal opinion, I don't believe in elementary, it's an issue for us right now as our, our elementary schools follow the procedure that the schools put in place. But in, in, in middle and second in our high schools, it's a problem. It's a problem because of social media and what gets posted out there. A lot of times we'll get things that are posted out there. We, they'll make fake Instagram pages. They'll post fights. And a lot of times they'll post them on school uh, sites and they're not even a fight from that school. They'll post them from somewhere in another state and it gets we, we have to end up dealing with it. So uh, we're there. I look forward to, to some continued discussion because they has to be some action there, and we've got a little. Get, we have to get a little stricter on our end.
4: Similar thoughts in Pinellas. We've discussed uh, the policy at a workshop recently. We have asked the community for their feedback in a couple of public sessions that we've done. Think like a couple things that we focused on. Number one, if you take the 365 days a year. Um, 14% of those minutes are spent in school. The other 86% are spent somewhere else, at home, with parents, sleeping, doing whatever. So this mental health problem around cell phones is a school issue, but it's also a community issue. And so to address it only in school is really to say we're not addressing the full problem. Having said that, our biggest concern is what's happening in school, right? So we've discussed that. In our district, we're a one-to-one district. Every single student has been issued a laptop, so there's no need for them to have their phone in class for them to participate in any kind of online activity or what have you. They have a laptop and they can use it. Um, I think we would all say we don't want phones in schools. I think the challenge is when we call you and say, we just took your child's phone and we're not giving it back and you have to come pick it up and you yell at us and scream at us and curse at us, and then what, right? That's the conversation I've been having. It's easy to say we don't want them. If you think that a 16-year-old is going to say, okay, well, I'll leave it at home, Um, you're nuts. And for some of the 16-year-olds, their connection to their phone is far stronger than their connection to the adult that's asking them to put it away. And so what happens then and what's the consequences and how far are we willing to go with that? That's really where we are. It's not about do we need them. We don't. It's not about are they helpful. They're not. The question is, what's the control mechanisms that you're willing to do as a school and board? Our policy allows for them to not be around. Our, really, our elementaries are zero problem. And for the most part, our middle schools are not a problem. Our middle school policies pretty much or procedures at schools don't allow them, and we don't have an issue. It is in our high schools. And it's not, though, so much in classrooms anymore. We've pretty much cut that out unless it's a weak individual in the, in the classroom. It's class change, and it's lunchtime. But it does come down to, what are those consequences? Um, I can tell you that as recently as I think it was this week, um, I was in my office with a parent of one of our students who called them in the middle of the day and the parents are like, well, they shouldn't have their phone. And I'm like, well, that's, you're right. They shouldn't, but they're calling you and you're answering it and they're calling you and it's class time. So that's the challenge
6: that we face. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Kennard Robinson. Uh, this question is specifically for Mr. Hendrick. Uh, I'm struggling a little bit, so I'm hoping that you can help me out. So my wife is a counselor at Largo Middle, back in the September time frame, she was assaulted by a student, suffered a sprained shoulder. She decided to press charges, as she should have. Um, here we are in the November, well, mid-November, and the student is still in the school. The student has not been removed from the school to go to a secondary alternative school. Uh, the reason that she was given and that her principal was given was because the student is EBD, however, My wife is um, uh, emotionally, uh, yeah, Um, so this is, my wife is the fourth or fifth female faculty member that this student has assaulted in his time at Largo Middle. Earlier this week, we found out that the state of Florida decided to move forward with the charges that my wife is pressing against this student. So ultimately, it seems that the the state of Florida is taking more action in the same amount of time that the school system hasn't taken, it doesn't appear that much action has been taken. My wife doesn't feel safe going to school. I don't feel safe with her going to school with the student still being there. So I'm hoping that you can help me understand what is the process to protect students, but also protect faculty from students in this situation, and why does it take so long to just have the student reassigned?
4: Thank you for your question. And uh, first of all, you know, obviously, I'm not aware of that particular situation. I don't want to say obviously, I'm not aware of the particular situation, but I will look into it. And if I can get your your name afterwards, um, there is no, there should be no time where a student assaults a, an adult on campus and there's no consequence. And so. Um, that's my initial piece and I'm, I'm very curious as to why that would be so I'll research it and find out the answer to it um, Having said that it really that You know label of disability or what have you doesn't Doesn't uh, give you right to do that to anyone. It shouldn't be a student or an adult So I'll research find out. I'm not sure the answer to that But my initial thought is
0: something's not right and and we'll see what it is that was Kevin Hendrick, the superintendent of schools of Pinellas County. And before him, we heard Van Ayers from Hillsborough and Kurt Browning from Pasco County. Those three local superintendents of schools were speaking recently at Tampa Tiger Bay Club. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. We'll continue to hear from these superintendents. The next two questions are about education laws that are coming out of Tallahassee and about removing books from schools. So if you have thoughts on any of these topics and you're listening live on December 19th, you can give us a call and tell us what you think. The number is 813-239-9663. You can also email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So we're going to hear the three responses from the superintendents about education laws coming out of Tallahassee and about removing books from schools. The first response here will be from Kevin Hendrick from Pinellas.
5: Cindy Wilson, Tallahassee has passed a lot of laws about education
2: the last couple years. How do you, the three of you have thousands of students in your care, how do you balance that with the needs, the very real needs of every student, different ethnicity, different religion? different gender identity. How do you
5: balance that without, well, getting in trouble?
4: (laughs) I don't mind taking that first. Um, First of all, you have to separate the law from the culture war part of it. And we've seen so many times that sometimes what is in the law is not what is being talked about in terms of implementation. Um, I, I saw something as recent as this week around that. So you have to separate what is fact from what is the political talking points of that. And then you just simply have to, at the easiest level, not let it impact classrooms, right? Um, if you're talking about the the you know, political part of book bans, I sat with one of our principals this morning, an elementary principal, and you know we, we both agreed that it has, at, has had absolutely no impact on her school. She doesn't allow it to, there's been no challenges, there's no books in her classrooms and in the whole school. So in her case, she doesn't make it an issue with her faculty, and it doesn't become that noise. Now, it, it's noise for myself and our board and others, but you have to try to keep those things away from classrooms. When you talk about protecting all students, um, that's something we've discussed a lot. It's been a topic at our board meetings. Um, we have an inclusive schools guide that works to protect all students in our district. We do trainings on that. And again, you have to separate what is actually in the law from what is um, actually practice. So. We've had those, you know some of these things like single use restrooms and things like that in place for a long, long time in our school district. and it's that's not new news just because someone put it in the law. So that's how we've tried to deal with it is um, make changes to policy that are required by law, but then try to limit the impacts on classrooms so our teachers can just teach. I
1: just piggyback on that to say, in the end, I've always made decisions, my board has as well. We make student-centered decisions and make decisions what's best for all students and remembering that. So we deal with what comes down from Tallahassee, but in the end, in this district, we're going to do what's best for all kids all the time. Um, a lot of the time, thank you. A lot of the time, what we hear is a lot of the the... It gets very political about all this stuff and talk and this, and in the end, it has absolutely zero impact on the day-to-day operation of the school district. It creates a lot of noise over here, but in the end, our teachers, our administrators, we're doing what's best for kids every day, and a lot of this stuff has no effect on our day-to-day operations at all.
2: I figured this question was gonna be asked, and I still don't have a good answer for it, other than uh, I believe there's a great deal of, of misinformation being spread out in the community across the state about what is and what isn't happening in public school systems. Um, And I'll just pick a scab off, I mean, we get accused of indoctrinating kids. Let me just pose another question to you. If we were so good at indoctrinating kids, why would we not indoctrinate them to read and write and do mathematics? So. Um, the, the ones that, that concern me the most, I think the impact that I've seen the most is with our teachers. Uh, there have been laws passed that literally when, when they, the first blush is, oh my gosh, I can't say this. Can I say this? I don't wanna go to jail if I say this. And I use the word paralysis. And I think a lot of our teachers are out there feeling like they're paralyzed. They don't have the, the freedom, if you will, now I've always told my teachers, you stay with with district approved curriculum, you will stay with district approved resources, you stay with the state benchmarks, and you will be golden. It's when you start straying outside of those things and you start injecting your own beliefs and your own ideas that when it starts bouncing up against some of the laws that have been passed in Florida, that's where you're going to get in trouble. And uh, I have stressed to my teachers over and over and over again, stay within the standards, stay within the curriculum, stay within the resources, and we'll, we'll support you. Um, it is a very tenuous time for public K-12 today. In my opinion, it, it is. Um, we don't play by the same rules as charter schools. I support charters. I think charters are a great choice for families that want that for their children. Uh, but but it, is, uh, it is a very tenuous time for public K-12
3: Hi, Carmen Edmonds. And kind of to piggyback off of that, we all know that there's Florida's state statutes, what what she asked, that are going, um, not being followed in some of our schools. And books have become a really big issue concerning those Florida state statutes. And I know myself and many others here have shown up to each of you all's school board meetings to talk about removing age-inappropriate books from our schools. And we're not asking for bans because these can be bought publicly. We're asking that age-inappropriate books be removed from the eyes of minor children. So my question is twofold. Who is responsible for ordering these books And then two, why has a blind eye been turned to the removal when they clearly violate Florida state statutes? And then if anyone here would like more information about that, come see our table. We have information concerning the violation of Florida state statutes.
2: Let me take a quick stab at that. Um, We are going through the process now of reviewing every one of the books in our media collections. I have media specialists that are trained, law even talks about media specialists in the bill, um, and we are reviewing age appropriateness, and I believe that is, that is the key terminology that we need to keep in mind. I will just be very bold and candid with you. I am not into banning books. I am not into removing books off of shelves, uh, but I am about making sure that third graders are seeing what is third grade appropriate. Um, you should not be having access to books for third graders that ought to be seniors in high school. Um, I just had an email from a parent, well, I didn't, one of my school board members got it and they forwarded it to me, uh, about this one particular book. I don't know anything about it. We'll look at it. We'll review it. Um, I just believe, and I I just firmly believe that when we start getting in the business of restricting access to materials. Um, it's a very slippery slope, and, and for every parent out there that wants a book taken off the shelf, there's a parent out there that wants the book available for their child to have access to. It, it's, it, it, it really puts school districts, and again, I think the whole book thing has been blown out of proportion. You, you don't. We do. We have books in our collections that are probably in the wrong place. Age appropriateness. Yes, we do. But when we find it, we fix it. Uh, we are not indoctrinating children. We are not trying to uh, sway kids one way or the other uh, with their, for their gender identity. We're just not doing that. My gosh, we don't even have time to teach them to read, write, and do arithmetic. Uh, but those are the types of issues, though, that will that pull us away from the work. And that is to make sure that each one of the students that we serve get that world-class education that we talk about a lot in Pasco and that they are full option grads when they graduate after 13 years of school.
1: I'll add to that, so the key, what Kurt just mentioned is age appropriate. We have a process, I'll speak to Hillsborough County, we have a process for books and books to be removed from our, from our media center. So to answer the question specifically, who orders the books? That is through our media specialists. So what we're, so some of the law changes is we have now, our media specialist responsibility has tripled over the last year. Now every single classroom library, I want everyone here to understand, we have to, we have a whole new software program that we had to order called Beanstack. And that software, it basically does the following. Every classroom library, so every kindergarten through fifth grade teacher that has a, uh, a library in their classroom, that has to be inventoried through the media specialist. And the media specialist goes through and checks every single book for age appropriateness. And the media specialist then approves or takes books out. We Part of our natural process, what we go through in Hillsborough County, we have a natural weeding process where the media specialist, in their determination... If there is a book that they do not feel, let's say they get questioned on it, and they look at it, and they maybe didn't even realize that that book was in their their inventory, they can weed that book, take it out of circulation. We have in Hillsborough County this school year, we've had books challenged. We've had three. Three books challenged. But we also have a weeding process that occurs naturally throughout the school year, and that occurs with our media specialists.
4: Yeah, Similar thoughts to both Kurt and Van. The one thing I would add in Pinellas is we put in a step to give parents the choice of control over their library media materials. And uh, we have about 87,000 K-12 students. About 50,000 of those parents filled out the form. And of those 50,000, there were about 200 who said, please contact me. I want to have some sort of control over the books. The other 49,800 said, we trust the work that you're doing in your schools. (laughs) The other thing I would say is that, just like Kurt said and Van said, um, there have been some books that are just not appropriate for the K-12 system and that they've gotten into our schools. And uh, to your point, we have removed those. And some of those have been done through challenges. Some of those have been done through our library media specialist, who, by the way, are the ones that the law allows to do that. Not me, not Kurt, not members of the audience, but the media specialist. So it is happening, um, and I would agree with Kurt. We're not in the business of taking them out. Um, you know, we're we're in the business of giving parents the opportunity to choose what they
0: want, and, you know, the great, great majority of parents in our district have said, we're comfortable with the selections you've made. Well, that was Kevin Hendrick, the superintendent of schools from Pinellas County, and before him, we heard Van Ayers from Hillsborough and Kurt Browning from Pasco. These three loop local superintendents of schools were speaking recently at Tampa Tiger Bay Club. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa live on December 19th. I'm going to read a couple of emails that have come in over the last few minutes, and they were uh, these two were about one of those questions. Uh, first of all, Bubba writes, that book Nazi lady represents all that's wrong in Trump world. I like Browning's response to her. That's Superintendent Kurt Browning of Pasco County. That's what Bubba says. And then um, someone else writes in about Moms for Liberty as well. They use a kind of a a slur referring to the sex scandal that happened with one of the co-founders of Moms for Liberty in Sarasota County and they were asking whether they were part of the discussion. They apparently, it sounds like it was the Moms for Liberty um, member who was asking that last question there. They weren't part of the discussion other than being able to ask questions. Everyone was, all the members of Tampa Tiger Bay Club. These three superintendents of schools were the people who are answering and that you've been hearing throughout this program and will continue to hear. So if you'd like to send us an email, dj at WMNF.org, you can text 813-433-0885. Or if you'd like to make a phone call and tell us what's on your mind and what you think about this conversation so far, give us a call at 813-239-9663. The next two questions coming up are about relationships and about using tax money to pay for private school vouchers. The first response we're going to hear will be from Kevin Hendrick of Pinellas County.
5: I'm Melissa Erickson. I think a lot of the subjects that you've talked about today touch on something that we haven't talked about, which is relationships. I think that, you know, Superintendent Browning, you talk about the standards. There aren't relationships in standards, but we know that relationships are key to learning. So relationships between students and teachers, relationships between teachers um, and administration and leaders, relationships between home and school. And when a lot of these policies are put in place, we jump over the relationship to the policy and we stop giving the power to that personal connection. So it's not a conversation. People don't have a conversation with a teacher or a media specialist before they say to ban books. Educators are super afraid to have conversations that build relationships with kids because they're afraid of having that. And kids are desperate for relationships, desperate for relationships. That's what they tell us since COVID. I think even the cell phone policy that you've talked about has to do with relationships, has to do with the relationships. What role does relationships play and how do you see the change over the last few years because of the political climate and COVID impacting relationships
4: relationships is one of our six core values and it's something we emphasize as a district but specifically melissa since covid i've emphasized a lot about the student experience what is the experience that we want our children to have in our schools and what would make them come to school during covid we got pretty good at delivering content digitally and certainly now you can learn just about anything you want uh, through a computer but if all we're gonna do is put them in front of a computer or old school, put them in front of a book to read, why do I need to come to school? I can do that at home. So what are those relationships in classrooms that are fostered between students and adults or students and students that cause me to wanna to come to school? What is the pedagogy that's happening that forces me to be collaborative, that's project-based, that's competition? So we've really pushed academic competitions, Um, literacy challenges. We've done a lot with field trips. We've used a lot of our ESSER and art money to push students out into the community to see things that maybe they didn't get to see. But mostly it's because we want their experience in school to be a positive one that isn't built behind all I need to do is just look at the computer screen. So I'd say in in Pinellas County, uh, and while I don't disagree with your sentiments, Melissa, it's been such a huge focus of the last two years I don't think our teachers are afraid to build relationships with students, and certainly they know the expectation from our board and from me is we want that experience to be one that they're constantly communicating, constantly having a reason to come to school. Otherwise, they won't. If I can just come once a week and hand in my work and take the test and come back next week, why do I need school? So we have to foster those relationships in order for them to be successful. And
1: thank you for that question, Melissa, around relationships. Because in the end, I don't care if you're 50 years old or 10 years old, you as an individual need to feel that somebody cares for you and got your back, right? So, all of our educators in Hillsborough County, it comes down to how I treat my students in my class, treat them like if they're my own. We've heard that, but when we act that way, then you build those relationships, whether an adult, a child, they'll do their very, very best for you. So really it's about these relationships we talk about. Um, it's about doing your doing your very, very um, best to make sure those relationships um, are built one interaction at a time. So, thank you. Uh,
2: obviously, I think it's uh, apparent when you come to Pasco schools that relationships are important. Uh, I think COVID took a horrible toll on relationships. Uh, I also believe that some of the legislation that has been passed by our state legislature has taken a horrible toll on relationships. Um, There are students out there that will not, under any circumstance, share information with their parents. They will not do it. Um, And that, again, now puts a teacher or a trusted adult at a school um, in a real sticky place. Uh, because they now are questioning, can I talk to the student about that? Can I not? Uh, there's a lot of debate, and I think there probably maybe some variances even between districts about how we interpret that. Uh, but um, it is, generally speaking, on a general broad terms, relationships are important. Teachers can still have and still do have relationships with students. Uh, they need to have those healthy relationships so that they are engaged in their in, in the in the uh, learning in that classroom. Uh, they, the relationships are there. I don't want anybody to think that we don't foster relationships in our schools. I think that when you, when you ratchet it up to the next level on real personal things, the elephant in the room. It's like gender identity. We have a student says, I think I may be gay, but if I go tell my mom, my dad, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. Well now, if you know that, there might be, and I think there probably is, a responsibility on the teacher to have to call the parent, which has never been the case before, unless there is some belief that there may be injury to the child. That's how specific the law is. Um, And I think when you start talking about, and I think that's where you might have been going uh, with relationships is is those deeper social questions uh, that, that kids need help with, and they, they don't have a trusted friend to talk to about it. Maybe they do, but they're looking, I think, for a trusted adult, and sometimes, many times, they can't trust their parents.
3: Hello, Noreen Dollard. Um, I'm just curious as to the impact that you're seeing on your schools, especially uh, fiscally, from the uh, releasing the, the cap on eligibility for the Family Empowerment Scholarships and Florida tax
2: credits. That's a great question. Uh, we don't know yet, because the state has not released any information to us yet. Um, the, um, this is where I'm just gonna get a little bold. Um, when I was growing up, the FES, the Family Empowerment Scholarships, is where you can have take your child to a private school and the state will pay for it through the school district. I will tell you, when I was growing up, and I guess it's my age, I got my Medicare card this year. Um, It must be my age, because when I was growing up, if your parents wanted to send you to private school, your parents paid for it. My problem with with the scholarship program is that you're using public money to pay for a private education. So when does a private school become public? And on top of that, there's no accountability for private schools, and I'm not anti-privates. Don't get me wrong, don't anybody walk out of here thinking I hate private schools, because I don't. They serve a role, they serve a purpose. But at what point in time does the private school become public? There's no accountability in private schools. They don't take the state assessments, they don't have to meet the state benchmarks and state standards like uh, traditional K-12 or even our charters do. But yet this money keeps going out. You've read press reports about Uh, money not getting to the students. I actually talked to a grandfather of one of our students, uh, actually in Hillsborough, said the parent is sitting on about $18,000. Sitting on about $18,000 and the private school won't take them. I will tell you if it's in Pasco, we don't even know who those kids are. We don't even know where the money is going. And so here we are having to build a budget, we're having to pay teachers, staff classrooms, drive buses, feed kids. And we don't know if it's going to be 100 or if it's going to be a 1,000 kids leaving the Pasco district. It is, this system, in my opinion, needs to be tightened up a lot.
4: Like Kurt, uh, you know, the reporting back to districts has not quite happened yet. So you just rely on your own projections and figures. We haven't seen a huge impact that we've seen students who are already in private schools access those. Two things I would ask you to pay attention to, one, the deregulation efforts that are happening right now in Tallahassee. Uh, We support those. I was in Tallahassee on Wednesday and testified with the Senate around those. Uh, I think those are a step in the right direction. And then secondly, uh, you think about the millions and millions of dollars that are going in these FES scholarships, we would all support further investment in education. Um, but I would suggest that that should be an early learning. If you really want to solve the world of public education, you could have free all day pre-K for threes and four-year-olds or twos and threes and four-year-olds. And think about the impact on this state that that would have versus giving away 13 years worth of dollars. You could do it in two or three years and change the lives of everybody and uh, the health of this state for a long, long time. Thank you, Kevin. So I would say,
1: I'm going to go to early learning a second, but just start, start with private schools. You know, this district, myself, we're competitors, and in our high schools, I'll put my high schools against any private school anywhere. 28 of our high schools, thank you. I'll put any of our high schools up against any private school anywhere. 28 of our high schools, they all are Cambridge certified. You can earn A's diplomas. We have four uh, IB certified uh, high schools. We have collegiate academies. Um, we have remarkable high schools in this school district. And, yeah, is it fair? No. But from where I sit, we're just going to be better at our game and keep those dollars here and beat them. I mean, just where I'm at. If they they want to take the money, but to get to early early learning, right, to get to early learning in those dollars. Right now, our big push in Hillsborough County is around early learning. So right now, we just had some of our PM1 data just to kind of put the sense of urgency around early learning. Right now in Hillsborough County, less than half of our kindergartners, guys, are ready for kindergarten. Less than half, 49%. Last year's number for third grade proficiency, 46% of our students in third grade were proficient last year. We just had our PM1 data this for our fast assessment, kind of our progress monitoring, and it basically tests end of year where we're at. So, right now for third graders, basically, how many of our third graders right now are on grade, not students say on grade level, but already proficient at end of year? We're at 24% right now. That number will increase over the year because that tests end of year, right? But we have to invest in that early learning component. Here's why, and I best explain it this way. Those first few years from pre-K all the way up to third grade, that is where students are learning how to read up to third grade. Once you get to third grade, it flips and you read to learn, If we can solve it in the beginning and where kids are learning to read and we get them proficient in reading at third grade, we did a study back in 2016 for proficient third graders if you are proficient, meaning a level three in third grade, 98% graduation rate with those previous students in that cohort. We've got to invest in early learning, getting proficiency ready at third grade, have students learning to read. And we're moving in Hillsborough County around um, science-based reading, phonics approach, getting back to some basics to improve that, um, that third grade proficiency. We've got to move that needle. We've got to be upwards of 70, 80, 100%.
0: Well, that's Van Ayers, the superintendent of schools in Hillsborough County. And we also heard from the other two local superintendents of schools, Kevin Hendrick from Pinellas and Kurt Browning from Pasco. They were speaking recently at a Tampa Tiger Bay club. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. We're going to hear another couple of questions and answers right now. The next two questions are about trends and about poverty and community schools. So the first response that we're going to hear right now is from again Van Ayers of Hillsborough County Public Schools.
5: Thank you for that Mr. Ayers. And my question was is great leading into that um, perhaps you were seeing some other trends with the PM and quarter 1 data. Have you noticed any trends that you you can see that are comparable to other districts around our community and if so you talked about what you're going to do what are some things that um shifts that that our our district can make to um, overcome some of those trends that you're seeing
1: Right. So um, so our PM1 data, what we're looking for our PM1 data, we have seen from, and we just had our school board meeting, we had a, uh, a presentation where we looked at all of our PM1 data. And as you look from last year to this year, we've seen tremendous growth, two to three, even up to six percentage points across uh, grade levels. So really excited to see where we're moving. We've already made a tremendous start to that. <clears throat> but again, it goes back to... Um, the approach to Tier 1, Angela, Tier 2, Tier 3, um, as far as interventions go, it's whole classroom instruction, but then it's the progress monitoring piece on our end. That's what we've got to be a bit better at, is identifying where the students is, is, is falling short and progress monitoring and putting those interventions in place to attack that, to make sure that we have them proficient is where we've got to get to. And, I, and I, just to get off, we t- in the state of Florida, <clears throat> we get credit for gains, students make gains. Gains, to me, gains hurts. We need students proficient. I don't need a moving just a, a moving from a level one to a level two and saying that we got credit, we made gain. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's about having students proficient. Proficient is what matters. Thank you.
3: My name is Barb Tepke. I'm a retired educator. I've heard that many parents and children in Tampa live in poverty or pretty close to it. I've also heard about community schools that help with those students and families. How many are there in your district? Please describe what they are or their value to the community, and will there be more in the future?
2: Question. Um, We have two community schools in Pasco right now. We start one at Gulfside Elementary, which is down in the Holiday area. Uh, It's it's, uh, a community school just doesn't serve the kids of the school, but the community of that school. So moms and dads can come in there. Uh, We have it set up so you can get medical care. Uh, You can get dental care. You can get mental health counseling. You can pick up food. uh, You can, uh, what else can you do? You can get a clothes out of the clothes pantry. Uh, We just opened a brand new, I mean, literally cut the ribbon on it about three weeks ago at Hudson High School. Uh, We built a brand new uh, health community resource center. Uh, Same thing, uh, being uh, managed by Premier uh, Community Health, which is a federally qualified uh, health provider and, uh, we're, and we, we put these two schools in areas that are in most need. Uh, we would like to have more, they're not cheap, but we would like to do more of those because I believe you've gotta meet the basic needs of families before you can start talking about getting to the read and write. You really have to, you really have to.
4: In Pinellas, we have one official at Campbell Park, our resource center there, which actually serves several uh, elementary schools and middle schools, same type of thing tax prep for families, food. after-school tutoring as well, wraparound services. But we have components of those community schools at many of our schools. So food pantries are at about 70 of our schools. The wraparound services are at nearly all of our elementary and middle schools. Um, healthcare, referrals, and things like that happen at a lot of our schools. So it's, uh, the community school model is expensive. We are actually trying to look at a second one right now. Uh, but the components of that can be replicated with a lot of different partners and that's how we've tried to meet those needs.
1: Yeah, and in, in Hillsborough County, <clears throat> excuse me, we have nine community schools. We have nine community schools for us in, in, in our in our district have been game changers. A uh, shining example is Moore Elementary. Um, the the achievement gains that they've made in that community school approach um, has been remarkable, and we look to to expand. But as to Kevin's point as well, besides community schools, we have food pantries in numerous uh, of our of our elementary schools.
0: That's Van Ayers, the superintendent of schools of Hillsborough County. Before him, we heard. Superintendent Kevin Hendrick from Pinellas County and Kirk Browning, superintendent of schools from Pasco. The three of them were speaking recently at a Tampa Tiger Bay Club meeting. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. The three of the superintendents have one final question they were asked. This is about literacy rates and the first response that we're going to hear right now is from Kirk Browning of Pasco County Schools.
5: My name is Damaris Allen. I have one simple question for you. We always talk about challenges. What is one solution to a problem you face in your district that we all as a community could rally behind and help you um, help our kids?
2: Behaviors. Behaviors. Since COVID, we've fallen off a cliff. Kids do not know how to behave. Not all kids but we've seen, and, and, and I would think my colleagues would agree, we have seen an increased number of kids that do not know how to behave in a public setting. And guess which age band it is? It's kindergartners, first graders. I call my the COVID kids, the ones that didn't come out of a structured environment. And then they come into a structured classroom and they're asked to sit there and read or participate. And they're saying, ain't no way. And they go crazy in the classroom. They're behavioral problems. But parents have got to parent kids. We, we cannot raise your children. We cannot. I will not raise your children. I've raised two of my own. I don't want to raise any more. But it is a partnership. It's a partnership between the schools and parents. And we have to have parents in order to, to, to educate kids and to make them develop into great little human beings. Behaviors. 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 And Damaris, I would just piggyback
1: on that is, is our teachers can't teach them if they're not there, right? So it's twofold. It's around attendance. And then to Kurt's point around discipline, we have to have students. They cannot miss instructional time. Every, every minute that they miss, you know, impacts the teacher's ability to, to make our students move to that to that next level. So it's really around discipline, attendance, and really in the community realizing the importance. And back to COVID, you know, we got to where it was okay to miss school. It was okay if you didn't go to school. And our our attendance numbers have gone in the tank, and we're at something we're really looking to improve upon because our teachers can't do their job if our students aren't sitting in that seat.
4: I would say one solution is to help the schools around early literacy. It's been a huge priority in Pinellas County. So number one, as much as you can, use your voice to encourage students to go to VPK. The results for students who complete VPK for kindergarten readiness and then get to third grade is remarkably higher than those who do not. So that would be one. Number two, uh, we used a program during the pandemic from some of those relief funds that utilized volunteers that we paid. So they were paid $20 an hour to go in and read to kindergarten and first grade students. We trained them on an evidence-based reading program. You didn't need a degree or anything like that. But just that extra person reading to a kindergarten and first grader, and you talk about learning to read, makes a huge difference. So our board has invested in carrying that forward even after the pandemic funds have run out because of how important that is. So get students involved in those early VPK programs, whatever influence you have around that. And then how can you support kindergarten and first grade being an extra person who reads? You would be amazed at the results that that pays off for students' literacy rates.
0: Well, that was Kevin Hendrick, Pinellas County Superintendent of Schools. We also heard from Kurt Browning from Pasco County and Van Ayers from Hillsborough County. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan, And those were the three local superintendents of schools speaking recently at Tampa Tiger Bay Club. I want to get in a couple of uh, emailed co- comments that came in during the show before we wrap up. David writes, thank you so much for airing this today. I agree with Kurt Browning and he has the right idea on mobile phones. My 18-year-old daughter is addicted to her phone and it has affected her academically. I think she'd be a shoe in for the University of Florida admissions, but I'm not so sure now with her current grades and test scores. I know that her screen time affects her academic performance. I'm disappointed that we as a society have allowed this disturbing technology experiment to mess up our children's mental health. Also, I'm tired of these book bans. Moms for Liberty should change their name to Mom for hypocrisy hoping that this org dies soon because of a lack of funding and attention says david and also we have another email that says in terms of the discussion of relations Between teachers and students, I feel that only one superintendent answered the question somewhat honestly. The superintendent from Pasco said that teachers are put in a very sticky situation due to new laws. This is true both in terms of times when a student feels the need to confide in a teacher and also when the teacher is having an academic conversation with the students. And that's from Christina. She goes on, but we need to wrap up now. I want to thank our phone screener, John Dunn. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. During this time slot tomorrow, Shelley Reback will host Midpoint. Coming up next is Wave Makers with Janet and Tom Scherberger. Their wave maker today is journalist Tim Burke. He'll be talking about the FBI and freedom of the press. This has been Tuesday Cafe coming to you live on December 19th, 2023, from the studios of WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, Lakeland, Newport, Ritchie, Bradenton, and beyond. Thanks so much for supporting WMNF.org and for listening to us on 88.5 FM. Stay tuned for Wave Makers after NPR.